We are a people of the long view. And by that I mean we are people created by the eternal God to live into eternity. That's hard for us to comprehend, isn't it? We, we, we know the concept of eternity, uh, but our memories only go back so far, right? And some of you may have memories even from when you were really tiny. And maybe a parent even said, that's amazing because I think you were only one at the time that that happened, all right? But even there, they, those memories fade over time. They're blurry. We're, we're not sure. But, you know, for God, there was never a beginning point. It boggles our minds. And it should because we are finite creatures. He's infinite. We were given existence as he created us and brought us into that great timeline of eternity. But he's a, he is the God who had no beginning and he has no end. And he calls us to know him that we might actually live with him forever. And if you haven't spent much time in your lifetime or even in recent days considering that you're going to live somewhere forever, you need to think about that. It's good for all of us to think about that. But I also say that in part because sometimes in this Christmas season, we're, we're so focused on looking back, whether it be to the birth of Christ in spiritual terms, or sometimes, and you tend to do this the older you get, don't you? You look back on Christmas's past, and some of those seem like they were a lot better than now, the good old days. And, um, but, you know, we are people who have a future to look forward to. So these promises that God has given us are intended not just to give us perspective on the immediate here and now, but also to shape our eternal destiny. These promises are precious to us. These promises are given that we actually might have hope. I haven't asked you this question for a number of weeks. I was thinking about this last night. But here's a, here's a really good, powerful, basic question to ask again. Do you know how much God loves you? None of us can comprehend it, not in its fullness. But have you just set your heart, even for a few minutes, on the fact that God, the infinite, eternal God we're just talking about, who controls all things, loves you? Let's bow for a word of prayer. Father, as we open your word this morning, and set our hearts and our minds again on some of the greatest Christmas promises ever given, we ask that you would so speak to us through this word that our souls would come to life in ways they may not have come to life before, that they would be refreshed and renewed in the power of this word, that our understanding of you and your glory and greatness of, of your love might deepen to the place that we would be changed, that hope would come to life for some of us who feel little to no hope in our souls this morning. Some whose sorrow just seems to swallow them up day after day. Lord, would you come in the comforting power of your love, in the comforting power of your truth, and console them. Give birth to hope. And not just hope for one more hour or one more day, but hope that would sustain us 
beyond this life, even into eternity. Hope that because of of all that Jesus Christ is, all that He has done, and all that is promised of Him that He yet will do, that we would live in confidence, that joy would begin to spring up from within our souls as we consider this truth, that we would know you're the living God, you've entered the world, you've become a human being as we are, you lived and died and rose again, that we might not be subject to the darkness and slavery and bondage of sin, but that we might be brought into this marvelous life and light. Oh God, would you speak to us and move upon our hearts, change us from what we are and where we are to what we ought to be and where we need to be. Please, please, all this we pray in the name of Jesus, your only begotten Son and the only Savior of the world. Amen. Would you open your Bibles with me this morning to Isaiah 9? We were in Isaiah 7 last week, and today we come to Isaiah 9. That's page 573, if you're using one of the church Bibles uh, that are provided for you, scattered around the room. And if you would like to keep a copy of the Scriptures, you are welcome to take one of those with you. We would love for everybody to have a Bible. Matt made reference to the inversion. Bummer. (laughs) You know, I'm new to this. And uh, last year was our first winter in Utah, and we got a pretty good dose of it. And I think it was about the same uh, week of December that it really set in. Um, I remember that because Kristen and I had a couple of special things planned in conjunction with my birthday. And um, she took me up the mountain, uh, and we got above the inversion. And that was a really unusual thing. I've never experienced anything like it before. But here down in the valley, you kind of look up and say... um, think the sun is shining up there and there's hope I guess middle of the week that uh, maybe another little storm will come through and push all of this out but I mean we're people who prefer the light over this gloom aren't we and some of you probably stared out the window this morning and just thought like I did oh well you know there are great analogies and and metaphors kind of tied into that that would help us to understand some things of a spiritual nature And in the passage for us this morning, uh, Isaiah 9, the Lord actually refers again to the darkness, the deep darkness, the gloom. There there are several different terms that we're going to encounter this morning that Isaiah and the faithful remnant in Judah were dealing with. We looked at some of this last week, and I know some of you couldn't be with us a week ago, but back in chapter 7, and gave a little bit of a historical context for this great promise. And so look at chapter 9 with me again. And, and just in the same way that this inversion has cast a gloom over this valley, I want you to think about the things that were taking place in Isaiah's day, 730 years or so before Jesus would actually be born. In Isaiah 9 verse 1 we read, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. 
The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light shined. You've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. What a remarkable prophecy. And again, for the prophet Isaiah and for the faithful remnant who were alive about the year 730, 735 BC, King Ahaz had taken their nation into deeper and deeper spiritual darkness. The promise of God's presence must have been like a great shelter for their souls. And quick review for those of you who weren't here with us a a week ago, Ahaz was the king who followed his grandfather Uzziah, a great king who but for one part of his his life and reign honored God and sought him. Then then Ahaz's father Jotham took uh, control of the kingdom of Judah for a brief period of time and, and Jotham did a fairly good job, but the people were following after idols and Ahaz was right there with them, even to the place where he sacrificed some of his sons to the false gods and idols of the surrounding nations. That's just one little indicator that Ahaz was not a man after God's own heart. He was not a man of faith. He was not a man of the word. It's a very dark time in Judah's history. And at this particular point, we think that they were probably about six years into the reign of Ahaz. That meant there were ten more years, and, and none of them knew when this would come to an end. Imagine how frustrating you would be. We, we feel some of that, don't we, because of the continual failure of our own political leaders. And it's both parties, by the way, isn't it? I mean, we just despair. Sometimes you want to throw up your hands and say, really? Can we not get one thing right seems everyone is intent on serving self and going their own way. Well, that gives you some idea of what Isaiah and the other faithful remnant in Judah were watching Ahaz do. Every time they turned around, he was breaking God's law and he was was emptying the nation of its sovereignty, of its resources. And the question that comes in a situation like that is how do you sustain your faith when there's so much corruption and evil in the world you're a part of, in the nation where you live? Where do you look when there is really no hope on the horizon for significant change or deliverance? Now, we don't have time to read through chapter 8, but let me summarize this for you. Because what falls between Isaiah 7's prophecy that we looked at last week, the virgin will conceive and bear a son, his name will be called Emmanuel, God with us. And then the prophecy we just read here in chapter 9 is, is, is a remarkable moment in the life of Isaiah. 
In chapter 8, Isaiah records four times that the Lord said or spoke to him and gave him particular words of instruction and encouragement. And Isaiah ordered his life according to those messages from the Lord. He wasn't looking at the national circumstances. And remember, that includes Ahaz trying to broker a deal with the real bully on the Middle Eastern or the Near Eastern block, Tiglath-Pileser, we talked about that name, uh, king of Assyria. And he's just rolling through the region, just taking nation and people after people and, and saying, you're mine, part of my empire, part of my empire. Two local kings... Uh, the king of Israel to the north, and then the king of Syria, also to the north, were, were trying to get uh, Ahaz to join them, but he wouldn't, and so they threatened to attack him, and, and so Ahaz is kind of going behind their backs and trying to broker this deal with Tiglath-Pileser. He, he empties out some of the treasury of the temple, sends it, and in the end, it comes back to bite him, because not even Tiglath-Pileser is going to protect Ahaz. So it's in that context, though, that the Lord actually comes to Isaiah, and the first thing he says, if you are, are scanning through chapter 8, uh, verses 1 and 2, he says, take a tablet and write on that tablet, the spoil speeds and the prey hastens. And this is God's predictive word, a word of prophecy, saying, you know what, these nations that are threatening you, uh, I, I'm going to take care of them. They're actually going to become plunder for people like you. And furthermore, if you read verses 3 and 4, you'll see that Isaiah uh, conceives a child with his wife and actually names him. The Hebrew name is Maher Shalel Hashbaz. Well, well, the child is actually given the name. The spoil speeds and the prey hastens. Well, it sure doesn't look like that circumstantially. Uh, that'd be like you and, and your spouse conceiving a, a child right now and, and naming him, you know, the glory of America will return. I mean, we all kind of hope for that, but we're like, with that crew in control in Washington? Not a chance. Well, that's the net sum of what Isaiah is doing. A remarkable act of faith. You know, parents, you, many of you have struggled with this. Kristen and I did years ago. You know, you, you look at your world, it's so bad, it's so broken, you think, do I really want to bring children into this world? If you're not a person of the long view, where God in his great goodness and sovereignty is absolutely in control and you can rest in that? The answer would be no, you'd be crazy. But if God really is in control, then you can actually joyfully bring another generation into this world, dark, broken, gloomy as it is. Because you say one day, the great king will come. Well, that's exactly what Isaiah and his wife did. Crazy it may seem. And then you continue reading through verses uh, 17 and 18, and you see that Isaiah waits and hopes because of the promises of God. And he says in verse 18 that his children, and there's more than just Maher, Shalel, Hashbaz, surely he had shortened that name and given that boy a nickname, right? But the children that God had given to him are actually signs and portents. That is, they're like little living messages, pledges of something that God was going to accomplish, special manifestations, if you will, as one author writes, of the power of God or tokens or symbols of future things that God would accomplish. And I'm, I admire this man so much to say, wow. As a little sidebar, 
The Bible doesn't record the end of Isaiah's life, but there is a lot of really hard stuff that happens between this particular point and the end of Isaiah's life. And through history, we believe this is an accurate account that Isaiah was actually martyred, a horrific death where he was sawn in two. You say, what about all those testimonies of faith and the names of your children and such? You know what? Hebrews 11 tells us that people like Isaiah didn't receive the promises in this lifetime, but they are receiving them now and will receive them when all the final rewards are given. You see, again, we're a people of faith, a people of the long view. We know there's more than the now. Well, that's the context. There's a lot going on, and Isaiah and his wife are are trying to raise a family in a very difficult time and there's still this deep darkness over the land and you look at at chapter 8 and verse 22 and God speaks of the distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish and says they will be thrust into thick darkness. He's talking about Ahaz and others who who are refusing to humble themselves under God's hand and his word. And it's into that context that chapter 9 breaks out. And and it really is glorious light, isn't it? And God gives these promises. The promise from chapter 7 is that a son will be born, Emmanuel will be his name, which is the clear indication God is with us. And now God promises that a child will be born, a son will be given, and he is the sign that God is for us. So as we set our hearts on this little truth, a son is given I want you to think, uh, as we read through the scriptures, and we're only going to go about halfway through this, this passage today, what kind of son is this that God is giving? Now, we read through chapter, or through verses uh, 1 through 7, and here, just to highlight a couple of, of, of quick points for you, no, notice that God is saying, there shall be no gloom, and he's speaking to people who are living under a spiritual inversion, it just doesn't seem like this gloom is going to lift any time soon for Isaiah and the faithful remnant. But no gloom, a great light, light shone. I mean, he starts, he starts speaking these words of truth as if things have already happened. And so when we come then to verses 6 and 7, and we read almost in this present tense, for to us a child is born. We start looking around, even in the context of Isaiah's day. So where is this child? And whose son is this? What are we talking about? Well, God is promising a splendid deliverance. And I use the word splendid because I was trying to capture something of those images of light. You might use the word radiant deliverance, a glorious deliverance. Light's coming because of the one who's, who's been promised to us. And notice even uh, verse 3. They're glad uh, with what takes place, the yoke of the burden. Uh, God has broken. I mean, words of hope and promise in those, in those first five verses. But let's go quickly to the fact that this, this promise is tied directly to a person, a deliverer. And I want us to look this morning at what the text says, first of all, about his origin, his origin. Now, not specifically like where does he come from, but origin in the sense that there are two key terms here that appear in this text that show us uh, that God is giving this individual for us, a little insertion there, unto us. You could also read that for us. But here's the first indicator. A child is born. He's human. Could God have sent one of his angelic beings to deliver Isaiah and the faithful remnant? Sure. 
There's actually a remarkable prophecy in Daniel uh, where God sends one of the mighty angelic warriors to the rescue. But not in this case. He's promising a child of human origin will be born. But then he also says a son is given. And when we ask, well, whose son? Well, this points us directly to the fact that it's God sending his son, and so he's divine in origin. The world has never seen an individual like this before. He is a -a one-of-a-kind individual. That's why in John's gospel, he uses the term the only begotten son of God. Yes, in one sense, God has many sons. I mean, you and I, if we've repented of our sins and put faith in Jesus Christ, are considered sons, full heirs, adopted by God the Father into his family. But Jesus is in a category all by himself. There's no one else like him. So God promises a mighty deliverer. It's not Isaiah's son that's in view. It's not a son of Ahaz or anyone else who was alive. This is the son of God. There's a beautiful prophecy in Psalm 2, verses 7 and 8, where the psalmist writes, I will tell of the decree, and here is what the Lord said to me. And he's speaking of Messiah. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession." So this son is God's son, the Messiah. Here's a second thought for us, along with revealing the origin of the mighty deliverer, this text also speaks of his capacity. Capacity has to do with a a leader's ability to do the work that needs to be done, to carry the load, to delegate the responsibility, to organize his administration, Uh, to to accomplish all those things that are before him. And God says of this particular one that he is sending, the government shall be upon his shoulder. And this is not a shared load. There's no executive and judicial uh, branch that, that can come alongside and support, or in the legislative branch that can that can work in some kind of concert. And accomplish these things. No, the the way it's written here is that the responsibility rests exclusively upon him. And I've often thought as I've read this passage, how strong are the shoulders of Jesus Christ that he could take the government of the world upon himself and be successful. It's quite a remarkable capacity, isn't it? That all dominion should be given to him. John indicates in chapter 5, verse 22, as he records the life and ministry and specifically some of the words of Jesus Christ for us, that Jesus said, the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. It all rests upon his shoulders. Certainly, God the Father could do it, but he has actually said to this one, it's yours. We read in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 28, verse 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And you remember the next two verses? It's out of that statement of truth that Jesus says, So you, my disciples, go into all the world and make disciples. All authority is mine. 
The government rests upon Messiah's shoulders. That's his capacity. What kind of a leader is this? Very different leader from Ahaz. Very different even from Isaiah, a faithful prophet, but a man of limitations. And he's very different from you and me. The text not only tells us of his capacity, it also tells us of his character. Look at these words with me again in verse 6. Now, the character is, is, is chiefly revealed in the names that are given to us. His name shall be called. Listen to what one Bible scholar writes of this naming and the importance of names, particularly in the Old Testament. The thought is that the child is worthy to bear these names and that they are accurate descriptions and designations of his being and character. In the Bible, the name indicates the character, essence, or nature of a person or object. When, therefore, it is stated that he shall be called, we are to understand that the following names are descriptive of the child and deserve to be born by him. Deserve to be born by him. So what the Lord is setting us up for is to say, I'm going to share some things with you here right now that are indicative of who he is. We name names sometimes because they just kind of sound neat to us. And that's why parents will pick names that, you know, maybe we had friends that actually uh, named their children with a certain pentameter. Are you familiar with that term from English class? Resurrect that one, like from junior English in high school. And and they just, like, the, the first name of the child had three syllables, and the last name had two. You know, so it gave them that neat little, you know, rolling off the tongue, all the names. We chose names in our family. Our girls got names that are tied, at least part of their names are tied to uh, Kristen's side of the family and the Swedish heritage that's there. I mean, they're not unique to Swedes necessarily, but they were names that have been in the family for quite some time. And our boys, we, we gave names. Uh, Seth got half of my name, and our oldest son, Luke, got half of my name. So it's Jonathan Luke and Daniel Seth. And then we, you know, kind of handicap these boys by calling them by their middle name. It's something that I've dealt with all my life, and people say, how come you go by your middle name? You know, ask my mom and dad. And so now Seth has to explain that he's not actually Daniel Brooks, he's Seth Brooks, and Seth is his middle name. But we chose those names in part because they're good Bible names. And uh, for instance, Daniel Seth means, Daniel means God is my judge, and Seth means compensation. God is my judge and compensation. We hope that'll be a testimony of faith, not just for him, but to other people. Jonathan uh, Luke means God has given a light bearer. Luke means light bearer. Jonathan means God has given. And it's not like we remind them of these names every day, but there have been a few key moments where we've said, you know, you got this name because here's what it means and, and trust God and, you know, follow him and try to live into that name. So there's a, there's a little brief, you know, sidebar has no bearing on the text other than maybe to help you understand some of the significance that when God chose names for his one-of-a-kind son, it was really important, not just because he was trying to communicate a message, but he was actually identifying what kind of individual this would be. The mission, if you will, of Messiah is actually wrapped into these names. How glorious then to see Jesus living into all of these names and titles and fulfilling every expectation and plan of the Father perfectly and powerfully. 
In the time we have left, we're only going to consider two of the four that are given to us in this passage. And so let's look first of all at the fact that the character of Messiah is revealed in this first title, Wonderful Counselor. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the word wonder is used with reference to these extraordinary, miraculous works of God. For instance, the parting of the, of the Red Sea as Israel came out of Egypt. And there have been all kinds of explanations that people have tried to give that maybe they actually marched through a really shallow part of the Red Sea and God just sent you know, a, a strong wind and sometimes you can even see you know, a similar event happen. No, no, no. He took them through the heart of the sea and with his miraculous wind separated the water and, and all of them passed through and it was a wonder. And by the way, if, if you've been tempted to believe that, well, maybe they just went through a shallow part of the Red Sea, strong wind, uh, you know, I would have to say if, if that's actually accurate, then it may be more of a wonder that Pharaoh's army drowned in shallow water and was absolutely destroyed. So you, so you need to think about the whole story, how it fits in. It's a wonder, though, and I don't want to diminish God's work by trying to give some, you know, other explanation. It's intended to say God did something that nobody had ever seen before. It's an amazing work of God. The fact that he led them through the wilderness, the fiery pillar uh, that was there by night signifying God's presence and the cloudy pillar that was there by day. And when, the, and when that cloudy pillar began to move, then the people knew it's time to move. God manifesting his presence in a wonderful way. Now when Isaiah uses the word wonder and ties it to this title of counselor, he speaks of an astonishing, extraordinary, amazing work that Messiah would do. And his, it is his counsel in particular that is in view. What he's indicating is that when Messiah establishes his kingdom once and for all, every single decision he makes will amaze us. And there's not one person who will come alongside and say, you know, that was pretty good, but if you had, it would have been better. Or maybe you would want to tweak or adjust that. Part of our wonder will be that every uh, decision he makes, every uh, every rule he enforces or every act of justice that he establishes will astonish us and will say, that's absolutely perfect. Makes me think that there probably won't be a whole lot for the news outlets to report in those days other than like, here we are again, we are amazed. I mean, what will all those talking heads talk about in that day? Sitting around their little plexiglass tables, high-definition screens behind them. They'll just say, you know, here we are, you know, day 4,967,812, and the Lord Jesus has done it again. He is wonderful. This promise is given to Isaiah and others like him who were exasperated with Ahaz. How could he be so wicked in his decisions? How could he be so foolish in his decisions? How could he jeopardize the, the financial prosperity of this nation and the, and the military might? How could he do this? 
And the answer is because he's a corrupted man. But here, a wonderful counselor is promised that will put the nations, not just Judah, in awe, but will put the nations in awe. You know, you have a little glimpse of that in the life of Jesus as it's recorded in the Gospels. And you remember some of those stories where the Pharisees or the Sadducees would come and they'd try to test him and put him in a hard spot. And one of those uh, is recorded in several of the Gospels where uh, the religious rulers came to him and they asked him about paying taxes. And uh, they think they've got him because if he says pay taxes, then he'll seem like he's selling out you know, the, the Jewish uh, loyalties, selling them out to Rome, and if he refuses to acknowledge their responsibility to pay taxes, well, then he's in trouble with the Romans, you know, because so they're licking their chops. They're like, oh, we got him. We got him. And the wonderful counsel actually says, does somebody have a coin? And they give him a coin, and apparently he hold, takes it in his hands, and I don't know if he holds it up for everybody to see, but in a very poignant way and simple way, says, Whose images are here? He says, and somebody answers, well, Caesar's. And he simply says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar, Caesar's and give to God what is God's. That's just a little glimpse of the kind of wonderful counsel Jesus will bring with his kingdom. You know, I think the present rule of Jesus Christ in us is also amazing. We're not yet perfect, and we don't yet live in a perfect world, but isn't it also wonderful that he loves imperfect people like us? Doesn't it astonish you that he would actually make a way for you and me with all of our sin and rebellion to be forgiven fully? That he would legislate if you will, by his own death on the cross, a government of grace, that he would wash away all of that sin, that he would remove the record of our sin as far as west and say, I'll never bring that up again. That he would adopt us and make us his own, that he would give us an inheritance in his household, that he would say with all joy to his disciples, Don't let your hearts be troubled, don't let them be afraid. In my father's house are many rooms, and I go to prepare a place for you. Is that not wonderful? I say that is even more glorious than parting the Red Sea. That he has made a way for you and me to come to him and enter heaven. He's a wonderful counselor. Then Isaiah records for us, oops, he's a mighty God. You know, it's one thing for a ruler to have perfect plans. It's another thing for him to be able to bring them into existence. I love to read the word mighty when it is Describing God. This particular word mighty refers to him in all of his strength. And it, and it even has a little nuance of the defender, the hero. We read Psalm 24. The great question, who is this king of glory? 
And the answer we gave, an affirmation of the psalmist and thousands, if not millions of other saints who have read this and, and preceded us in history, it is the Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Now again, in context, in sharp contrast to King Ahaz, who, who fears going into battle, whether with resin and pika or with Tiglath-Pileser, so rather than engage them and flex his military muscle, he negotiates. We read last week of the sad account that Ahaz's wickedness and evil still cost Judah 120,000 valiant men. This king of glory is of a very different nature. Jeremiah writes in his prophecy, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. You show steadfast love to thousands, but you repay the guilt of fathers to their children after them. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts. Nothing is too hard for this king. He's the mighty God. He not only has the wisdom, he has the might to bring that wisdom to bear upon his people for their blessing. You know, when you begin to see this all-powerful God as working, not, this is, this is starting to come out wrong, I was going to say, not only for his glory, as if that is a, a lesser thing. He always works for his glory. But when you see that along with his glory that he is moving toward and for, that he actually brings blessing to you. And, and that word sovereignty really begins to take on personal meaning, saying that God is actually sovereign over all things in my life. The, the littlest detail, the greatest and most significant decision I will ever make, all of these shifting currents of life and the course that is so unpredictable for us, my God governs all of it for his glory and for my good. And you become persuaded of that truth, then you will testify to things like the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8.38, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That can only be true if he is the mighty God. And we know it is true. Because even in that passage Paul ties it back to Jesus Christ, specifically what he did by his death on the cross. Only this son has the power to accomplish all of his purposes and to defend the interests of his kingdom and his people to the end. A counselor who is amazing in his rule and a God who is mighty in the establishment of his rule. I chose this picture as a background because I think it captures some of what's in this text. Dark colors populate more of the screen and the pixels than light and bright colors. But you look to that horizon in the back corner and you see light. Light. 
And because we have experienced the sun that God created, and though it, though it burns millions of miles away and it burns with such intense heat that, you know, really for us to move any closer to it would jeopardize our existence, right? But because we've had experience with the sun, though the clouds seem to be the greater presence and the darkness seems to take uh, more prominence in this picture, I look at this, and even in the context of what we've just been reading, I've, I'm thinking, but the light is where I'm going to focus. It's coming. These clouds aren't going to exist forever. This inversion won't always be with us. And the darkness and gloom that rests over some of your souls this morning will not always be there because Jesus is king. Now I will say this for some of you who are not yet in personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Darkness and gloom could actually be the only thing you ever know. Both now and it actually will get darker if you live out your days on planet earth having rejected the wonderful counselor and the mighty God. Saying no, I don't want that salvation and forgiveness of sins and those things he offers. No, I'm gonna gonna do it my own way. The only thing you can hope for is darkness and gloom. But you know, God in his kindness has been speaking the light of his truth into your presence or into your soul. It's an evidence of his love. And he calls you to himself. He calls you now. So come to him by faith right now. Just talk to him from your heart silently. Say, God, I I need you. I need you to take away this darkness and this gloom. I need you to take away my sin. I need the light of life that comes through you. Some of you have known Jesus personally for a long time. But recent circumstances may have just kind of settled over your soul, like the inversion. You know, we share so much in common with Isaiah. Remember, it was probably five or six years before this that he had seen God in his glory, heard the angelic witness, holy, holy, holy. But life's hard. You know, he's got to return to his world and provide for his household and care for his wife. He's got babies on the way. How's this all going to work out? You know, he's asking a lot of the same same questions that we are. But when he receives the word of the Lord, that's what he begins to live upon. That's what he, he puts in place and says, God, you've promised it. So let's live life. Wouldn't you like to hear that conversation? And, and maybe there wasn't much of a conversation between Isaiah and his wife, but maybe they wrestled with, should we bring children into this world? You know, Ahaz is setting us up for real disaster. But Isaiah has the promises of God to say, you know what, it won't always be this way. We can trust him. And so can we. I got questions like you do. I got stuff hanging over my soul that I just feel like I got to fight by faith every single day. Kristen would tell you, I mean, the things that I worry about, I'm fearful of, I mean, they just, they just roll like waves. And some days the waves are a lot lower and some days they, they're like tidal waves rolling over my soul. Say, so you're, you're a pastor. You've been preaching the gospel for 25 plus years. I know, you'd think I would have learned it by now. But I'm gonna tell you this, without the promises of God, 
I would not only be hopeless, I, I think I would be crazy. Suicidal. There's just so much stuff in life that is overwhelming and so many scary prospects on the horizon. But when you see God over it all, take a breath and say, okay. Let's press on. This wonderful counselor and this mighty God came once upon a time, 2,000 years ago. And he was only with us for 33 years. And his actual ministry was three of those 33 years. That's when he began to work miracles and, and gave us a glimpse of what the kingdom would be. Deaf people hear, blind people see. The poor are ministered to, they hear the gospel. People are delivered from sins. I mean, it was a remarkable moment in history. And in those three years, we began to glimpse what the eternal rule of this Prince of Peace will be like. If we don't look to that horizon point and believe the promises of his coming and by faith believe that light is breaking into this darkness and gloom, I say we will all go crazy. But praise God for his word. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Thank you, Lord God, for the hope that you've given to us. It's all in Jesus. There really is no hope for us to find in our own genius. There's no hope for us to find in our resources, our, our creativity, our powers to make something right in our little world. There's certainly no hope in even our government system and it, Though it may be one of the finest on planet earth, it's broken. The only hope and light that we see is in Jesus. Oh, Lord Jesus, shine that light. Our generation is much like Isaiah's people sitting in darkness. But how we praise you that in the course of history and multiple times over, you have shined the light of Christ, the light of his truth, the light of the gospel into nations that were in darkness and deep gloom. Shine it here. Bring comfort to those who are overwhelmed on this day. Souls have been flooded with difficult news or frustrating experiences or fearful prospects. Lord Jesus, Establish your dominion of peace. For those who wrestle with your truth claims, who are not even sure that you really exist as you reveal yourself in the Holy Scriptures, oh God, shine the light of the gospel into those precious souls today that they may see and believe. And as we celebrate your birth, a now distant event from the past, and we believe, Lord, we believe that you are the virgin-born Son of God. We believe that you are the light of the world, worthy of all the worship that shepherds and wise men and disciples and lame people and beggars and lepers could give you in those 33 years of your life, you are worthy of it all now and a day is coming where you will return and put your feet upon this earth again and take the throne of David and the kingdom will be yours forever. Oh, hasten that day. 
Bring it. Bring it, Lord God. So we believe. But in the intervening period of time between Advent 1 and Advent 2, help us to live faithfully. To be husbands and wives who love each other in faith. To be parents who pass that precious gospel to the next generation. To be friends and neighbors and co-workers who live with this glorious hope in our hearts and by that faithful and humble witness are used by you to draw others to Jesus. So thank you for hope. Help us to live in it. Help us to live it out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.